There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a special series of pathology podcasts celebrating the second National Pathology Week held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientist.com and in these podcasts I'll bring you some of the highlights of Pathology Week along with interviews to explain more about the importance of pathology in society. This year's events focused on pathology, the heart of modern healthcare, and considered many different aspects that affect our understanding of the heart. In this series of podcasts, we'll be discussing how thinking about heart problems could save a baby's life, looking at the process of a heart transplant, the heart in art, the ethics of heart surgery, and the anatomy of a heart attack. In this podcast, we explore the process of a heart transplant and the vital roles that each person plays in the complicated choreography of this life-saving procedure. So why would heart transplant surgery feature in a week that celebrates the work of pathologists? Dr Tim Reggett, Honorary Consultant Virologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital, explains more. Well, that's one of our problems, of course, because we sit in the background very quietly and no one sees us. And we play quite an important role because without our tests that we do in the laboratory, for example, organs wouldn't be safe. Without the tests in the laboratory, we may be killing transplant patients with virus infections. Without us, patients could be bleeding to death. Or they could have rejection, and we wouldn't know that for sure, so they wouldn't get the proper treatment. So really, we're very important. We're no more important than any other members of the team, but this is why the whole team is important. You have to have the right skills to run a successful transplant programme. But we think pathologists are a very important part of that skill group. That was Tim Reggett explaining why, despite remaining away from the heart surgeon's spotlight, pathologists are an essential part of the team. Now, no one wants to think that they may need to face heart surgery, but even otherwise healthy people sometimes need a transplant. I spoke to Clive Lewis, consultant cardiologist at Papworth Hospital, to find out why people may need a new heart. I think a lot of people will be surprised how common heart failure really is, and if we look at young people, of course, heart failure is r relatively unusual. Perhaps somewhere between 2 and 4% of people under 65 will have some evidence of heart failure. But this disease gets much more common with age, such that about 10% or more of older patients over 65 years of age will have some evidence of heart failure. And heart failure comes in many different forms. Indeed, and we see a wide variety of conditions of heart failure. The main ones that we see are those related to people who have had heart attacks or what people might know as angina, uh, and uh, that's caused by narrowing in the coronary arteries related to smoking, cholesterol, and a number of other factors, and that probably accounts for about half of the patients we see. And the other half is taken up by diseases which increasingly I think we recognise as genetic and we call those dilated hearts, enlarged hearts which obviously can't pump as well as a normal heart and a variety of other more unusual conditions uh, are, are seen from time to time as well. So knowing that it is actually quite common, 
what is it that sets those apart who will go on to have a transplant compared to those who unfortunately can't? I think really it's the severity of the heart failure. Uh, we recognise that patients uh, have a, a lot of symptoms which really impair their quality of life. They're unable to do the day-to-day -day things that they really enjoy doing. And transplantation gives them the opportunity to really go back and relive the days that they enjoyed before they were sick. And how successful are heart transplants? How long do you survive from having a new heart? Well, I think it's worth thinking uh, before that, that how long would you live without one? And that's perhaps the most impressive statistic is, uh, in fact, how, how severe heart failure can be. And in the sorts of patients that we're seeing with very severe heart failure, the mortality, i.e. those who would die within about a two-year period, would be anywhere up to about uh, half or 50%. So when we compare that with the success of the transplant itself, we're looking at about a 50% survival rate of 10 years. In other words, um, half of our patients will be alive still at 10 years. In fact, the statistics are even better if you survive the first year, because we know that a lot of patients do have trouble during the first year, particularly at the time of surgery, where there are all sorts of complications can ensue. And if you survive the, through the first year of surgery, then actually about 50% of patients will live to between 14 and 15 years, which is really you know, pretty good when you compare it with their uh, poor likelihood of survival before the transplant. And just finally, what are the factors that would stop you giving somebody a new heart? Well, there are a number of factors that we need to look at. And effectively, um, it's the patient who has single organ failure, as we might say, those who've only got one organ of the body that's diseased, and that's usually the heart. And we have to look at the, all of the other organs as part of our assessment. So if people have a really bad degree of liver, kidney, or other diseases that would impact on survival, something like a cancer, uh, which may recur after a transplant or serious infection, then we need to think very carefully before accepting them for a transplant. But I don't want to be too negative on, on things, and I think, uh, on the whole, the patients that we see are looked at and assessed in a very detailed way to just really make sure that they're going to get absolutely the most benefit from having a transplant as possible. Clive Lewis explaining why you might need a heart transplant and the unfortunate conditions under which it wouldn't be a viable option. We've briefly touched on the role of pathologists in heart transplant surgery and we'll be looking in more detail at the role of virologists, haematologists, microbiologists, histologists and biomedical scientists later on. But before these skills are needed, there has to be a donor heart available and an appropriate recipient. Also, key members of the transplant team are the transplant coordinators. Marion Ryan is the donor transplant coordinator for East Anglia. The donor transplant coordinators work regionally within a sort of geographical area to promote and hopefully increase um, the number of patients who are assessed and referred for organ donation. Once patients have been assessed and considered suitable for organ donation, then we facilitate the whole donation process, supporting the staff and the families um, on the intensive care units. Obviously, when people donate organs, they volunteer to do it. Usually it's in relatively tragic circumstances. But what makes somebody a good organ donor? 
Sadly, what makes somebody a good organ donor is somebody who's quite young, so that their organs are actually in good working order. Generally, patients who haven't had any previous illnesses and who haven't abused themselves. So just very sadly, somebody who'd previously been very fit and healthy. That being said, the majority of organ donors are probably in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and we'll always consider their organs as well. There's only one absolute contraindication for organ donation, two actually, variant CJD and HIV positive, so everybody else gets considered. How do you evaluate the organs? Um, It's done through actual physical assessment of the patient initially. We look at the patient's um, medical notes, speak to their GP, speak to their family about their social history, their medical history. And then when the, when the surgeons they actually retrieve the organs, they will visually examine and inspect the organs and that will be the final decision as to whether or not the organs are used for transplant. Donor transplant coordinators, like Mary and Ryan, work closely with recipient transplant coordinators. This is Helen Robinson from Papworth Hospital. We've got a multifaceted role, the main role of which is organising the transplant on the night of organs becoming available and seeing the patient through from that time, calling the patient in for a transplant and organising the recipient operation. We also have a daytime role, which involves the assessment of patients, looking after our ventricular assist device patients, looking after patients on the ward post-transplant and also pre-transplant in heart failure, so multifaceted role really so in a typical situation you find out that there's an organ available what happens next we get a phone call to say there's a donor available in a particular hospital could be within our region the east anglian region or elsewhere we then relay that information to the consultant surgeon on call and between himself and the registrars and ourselves we make a decision as to whether the donor sounds like a suitable donor really is there anything which would make that donor unsuitable are the organs functioning well we then have to look at our waiting list and decide whether we've actually got a suitable recipient based on the blood group of the donor and our recipients on the list and also the size matching of the donor and recipient as well and with the waiting list you don't just start from the top and work down do you it's a bit more dynamic than that It is really. There's lots of things we have to consider and really it is on the best match on the night. So again, it's it's down to the blood group. It's also down to the size of the donor. It's sort of almost a mini engine and Rolls-Royce scenario that um, you wouldn't want to put a heart that was too small into a gentleman who's, say, six foot because it really isn't going to provide him with enough function to sustain his other organs and to have a good outcome from the transplant. We also um, take into account things like um, whether patients have pre previous surgery and sometimes there may be logistical issues if a patient lives quite a long way away and there may be time issues with that and also which patients are the sickest on the list. Sometimes unfortunately this leads to false alarms. What happens in that situation? Unfortunately a false alarm occurs if we then get news from the donor hospital that when a team have carefully assessed an organ they may have assessed that the organ is not functioning well for whatever reason or there may be evidence of disease in that organ um, and so unfortunately the transplant can't go ahead we then have to organise the patient to go home. But they're usually pretty understanding because they know there's no point in actually replacing one poor organ for another one, really. So they want the best outcome and most of them, while disappointed, you know, do understand our reasons. This sounds like quite a lot to do, but 
it must be in a lot of pressure. What sort of time window do you have to do all of this? It can be very varied, depending on where the organs are and which team are going out to have a look at the organs. Um, sometimes it all happens extremely quickly and decisions are made very quickly. Other times the whole process, if we're sending our team out, the whole process actually can be several hours before we actually get a final answer. But that also gives us time to get our recipient here because to reduce the amount of ischemic time, so the amount of time the heart is actually out without circulation, we need to have our patient in Papworth and ready for the procedure once we hear that the organ is suitable for transplantation. Pathologists play an essential role at this stage, evaluating the organ to ensure that it's healthy and it won't pass on an infection to the recipient. Tim Regis on the role of virologists. Well, we do the tests on organ donors and we look for dangerous viruses like HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, which would mean that the organ couldn't be used for transplantation, it wouldn't be safe because it would almost certainly kill the recipient. We also look for things like cytomegalovirus antibodies, which can indicate that the donor organ could transmit that infection to a recipient. And how long do these tests take? I, I understand that when an organ becomes available... You're really working against the clock. Well, when I first started in this business, about 30 years ago now, it took overnight, it took 24 hours to get results of these assays. Now we can do them in an hour, so it makes the, uh, uh, the decision-making much easier now. Helen Robinson explains how the pathologist's role extends pre- and post-transplant. We rely on our pathologists for a huge amount, really. They do guide us as to the suitability of our donors if we've got any questions about underlying diseases and processes. And our pathologists are very much um, used post-transplant. They play a very important part in the post-transplant care of patients, in particularly detecting rejection in our patients, which is obviously the main thing that we have to do after the transplant is to reduce that risk of rejecting organs and it's by their sort of careful work physicians take biopsies and things they monitor those biopsies and grade rejection and things which is obviously a very important part in giving our patients again the best chance of having a, a long outcome post-transplant. So once the transplant coordinators are happy a donated organ gets the all clear from the pathologists and the recipient is prepped it's time for the surgery itself. John Dunning, consultant surgeon at Papworth Hospital, explains how it's an intensive but actually relatively simple operation. The operation itself is really quite manpower intensive. We need a team who are prepared to go to a donor hospital to uh, do an operation to get hold of the donor heart. And at the same time, we have to have another theatre team working in our hospital preparing the recipient for the transplant operation itself. No cardiac surgery can be performed without the help of cardiopulmonary bypass. This is a wonderful device which basically is a pump, but it allows us to drain blood from the patient's body, pass it through a heat exchanger to either warm it or cool it, pass it through an oxygenator to put oxygen into the blood and wash carbon dioxide out, and return it to the patient's body. While we do that, it's possible to exclude the large vessels which connect the heart to the patient's own circulation, so his own heart can be removed, and the ends of the vessels can then be prepared for implantation of the transplanted heart. You make it sound really quite simple. It's like painting by numbers, really. <laughs> well, I suppose all hearts are pretty much the same design so as long as it will fit then it should just be a case of connect the old sockets to the new heart yes that's absolutely right one of the big issues for us is making sure that the donor heart is the right size for the recipient obviously if you have a very big man who's a recipient 
it's no good at all putting a very small lady's heart into him. It simply won't work. So how long does the operation take? For a first-time operation, for someone who's not had cardiac surgery before, a heart transplant operation will take maybe four hours. If there's been previous cardiac surgery, it can be much longer than that, and it could perhaps last as long as six or eight hours. And what are the really critical stages? You say it's very manpower-intensive, but there must be one or two points in the surgery where one person needs to give it their utmost attention, and just for those few seconds, something very important needs to happen. I think one of the interesting things about surgery is it's a little like driving a car. So there are always moments where you have to concentrate with great intensity, but a lot of it is also done in a semi-automatic way. And there are steps, even in a heart transplant operation, that I would perform in standard cardiac surgery on an almost daily basis. So opening of the chest, for example, is a routine procedure. Establishing cardiopulmonary bypass support for the patient's circulation is a routine part of the operation. It's then very easy to add in the extra components, um, clamping appropriate vessels so that the native heart can be removed. That's all fine. The process of taking a heart out and putting a new heart in is really quite a simple, logical process. The most critical moment comes when we restore the blood supply to the transplant organ. And at that stage, under normal circumstances, the heart will recover electrical activity in the first place and then mechanical activity. Often it's disordered in the first place, the ventricular fibrillation that you'll be familiar with from um, medical dramas on television and so on. And perhaps we may need to apply an electric shock to the heart to produce cardioversion to a normal uh, sinus rhythm, a normal heart rhythm at a normal rate. Now, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes we have to help the heart with temporary pacing systems. And very, very occasionally... It may be that the heart that we've taken from a donor, believing it to be of good quality and of adequate function to support the recipient, simply doesn't work. And at that stage, what should be a relatively routine operation becomes something very extraordinary indeed because we have to consider other strategies such as mechanical pumps to support the patient's circulation long-term until we can perhaps find another heart donor that would be suitable for them. I assume it's not possible to put their heart back in. Uh, no, um, mostly because it simply wouldn't work. This is four hours for you of a very intensive operation, but it could give people, we've already heard once this evening, 19 years of healthy, active life. It must be a wonderful feeling when it all works. It's absolutely fantastic. I love the work that I do. It's more than work, and... I think everybody who's involved in this process considers themselves very privileged to be involved in it. It's fantastic to see patients recovering and returning from near-death conditions to what you and I would consider to be normal qualities of life. The thing that is so sad is that in order for this to come to a successful fruition, somebody else somewhere has to die. And the thing that I think is most humbling in the whole transplant process is the generosity of the relatives of individuals who become organ donors. So at a time when their lives are already filled with grief, they can think beyond that and have the generosity to offer their loved ones organs for donation. 
and we are all indebted to them for that forever. Surgeon John Dunning explaining the demands and rewards of a heart transplant operation. As we've already heard, pathologists are an essential part of the process both before and after a transplant takes place. But sometimes haematologists are called on during the operation. Consultant haematologist Martin Besser explains why he might get the call. Typically, if there's more than just a trivial number of blood units transfused, more than, let's say, six or eight units of blood, if the anaesthetists feel out of their depth or if they are becoming too busy on top of managing the circulation, breathing, etc., also managing the clotting results as they're looking after the patient. So what would impact the ability of the blood to clot? What would stop it from clotting properly? Um, you need the right composition in terms of red cells, platelets and clotting factors. And um, the whole process of cardiac bypass is very unphysiological because you force the blood through an unphysiological plastic tubing system with a non-pulsatile flow. So for the blood to be able to do this without forming clots, um, you have to very heavily thin the blood during the procedure. And you can then reverse it at the end, but you can imagine the blood is never quite as it was when it first entered the circuit. And sometimes either the dose is not correct, there could be a problem with surgical stitches, or it could have just gone on for too long, the whole procedure, and the blood isn't right anymore, even though it should be. So you're called in, the blood isn't clotting properly. What do you do? What's the first step you have to make? Um, there are near-patient assays we can do, and one of the best ones we can use is, is the thromboelastogram, which allows within 20 minutes to assess whether clots are forming and how strong the clots are that form. And we have a number of laboratory-based assays which typically take 30 to 40 minutes before we have a, a valid result. In that time, we can perform two or three take results, interpret those in combination. So they're relatively quick results. You certainly don't have to send things off mm. and wait overnight. Yeah. Once you get your results, what are your options? What, what options are available well, to you? We, we have a number of different products in blood bank. We have, these days, we don't store whole blood anymore. We store components. We store packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, which is obtained on the day of the blood donation and frozen at minus 40, and cryoprecipitates, which is fresh frozen plasma that was partly processed to enrich it in fibrinogen and uh, some other factors. And you, you have to choose cleverly between which product to use at, at which point, dependent on what's wrong with your clot. So you could add back in some platelets That's if they right. weren't enough? That's right. Typically the problem is you've given lots of packed red cells because that is what impacts immediately on your blood pressure and circulating blood volume. And that's a test readily available in the blood gas machine for the anaesthetist. So that tends to be adequately replaced immediately. But because you use packed red cells that don't contain the same ratio of clotting factors and platelets as normal blood would have done, you start creating an imbalance after a certain number. And I assume that you don't necessarily get it right every time. You have no, to add no, what you think you need and yeah. then test again. Exactly. And very often you have to base yourself on incomplete information because time is of the essence. And how much blood does it actually take up to achieve the correct balance again? Well, in the case I've shown you, it took about 42 blood donations. So literally everybody in the audience would have had to give a unit of blood and be of the right blood group. So making sure that people donate blood is very important to you. Yeah, it's very important, and you wouldn't think just how much support you need when things go wrong. You don't just need the one donor heart. Um, if things go badly, it, normally 
Some people don't require much transfusion, maybe two or three blood donations to get over it all. But some people, if, when things go wrong, very quickly he doubled, sometimes triple figures even. And 10% of patients in cardiac surgery take up 90% of the transfused blood products. So if, once you deal with one of those patients, it, it goes up exponentially in terms of what you have to give. For unit of platelets, you need four to six adult donors for an adult dose. And for um, a dose of plasma, you need four. And for a dose of cryoprecipitate, you need 10 adult donors. So could this mean that the availability of blood is actually a deciding factor in whether or not somebody gets an organ? Potentially, if you had antibodies, uh, antibodies are acquired um, through pregnancies, for instance, in women. They may have preformed antibodies against certain more or less common uh, red cell factors that then make transfusions difficult. And in those cases, we could only go ahead if we have enough of the right blood in stock. So it's not only essential to have a donor organ available, but also plenty of donated blood. That was Martin Besser, consultant haematologist at Addenbrooke's and Papworth Hospitals. Once the operation has succeeded, pathologists of a range of specialities are needed to ensure that the recovery is successful. Juliette Faraker is a clinical microbiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital and explains why we need to monitor for infection. The patient who has a heart transplant is vulnerable to infections that don't normally affect other patients or other members of the public, and that's because their immune system has been suppressed. So organisms that would normally not normally cause infection but can in that situation are called opportunists because they grasp the opportunity to cause infection. Any patient who has major uh, surgery is more likely to get infections as a post-operative complication. And in the heart transplant recipient, these are more serious than in the general patient who has surgery. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those. And what I thought would be quite nice for the audience is to set a scenario, so starting with the patient who gets a temperature five days after successful surgery, and how we as a microbiologist investigate the causes of that infection, how we advise on treatment and diagnosis, and how we grow the bacteria. So how do you go about diagnosing this? When you have somebody who's exhibiting symptoms of an infection, what's, what's the next stage? How do you take that forward? The role of a clinical microbiologist, because they're medically trained as well as having the technical knowledge, is really as the link between the laboratory and the doctors on the ground. So it's very much a team approach. So the, the doctor looking after the patient will be asking the patients what sort of symptoms they've got. So have they got infection in the urine? Are they having to go to the toilet a lot? Have they got burning when they pass urine? Or have they got a cough that suggests they might have a chest infection? So they ask those sort of questions. And based on that, they will take the samples to the laboratory for us to look at those particular samples sputum, urine, swabs of wounds, whatever, to see if there is infection. What we do is we test the bacteria against a range of antibiotics and then we advise the doctors which would be the safest and most effective antibiotics to use for that particular patient. Would you also be consulted before the operation to ensure that there's the lowest risk of infection? Yes, we would. We'd be consulted on two levels. One is to see whether the donor is an appropriate patient to donate their organs for surgery. So that's looking at the risk of infection that could be spread from the donor to the recipient of the transplant. We also may advise on uh, how we can make sure that the patient who's going to get the heart transplant is as fit as possible when they come up to surgery. So looking at trying to manage any infections that they may have prior to the operation. Juliet Faraker. Infection is not the only risk with transplant surgery. Susan Stewart, histopathologist at Papworth Hospital, explains the problem of organ rejection. Well, basically, the immune system recognises the organ as being foreign to that body and it will mount a response. 
And if it's a response with cells, then the, the cells will infiltrate into the transplanted tissue and will cause damage. If it's with um, antibodies, then the antibodies will cause a reaction with um, complement fixation and similarly can damage the tissue, although they look different down a microscope. There are likely to be obvious clinical signs that an organ's being rejected, but you look more at what's happening in the tissue itself. Well, yes, there may be obvious clinical signs, but one of the problems with heart transplantation is that the patients may be undergoing rejection and not have any clinical indication that they're not well. So that's why we do surveillance biopsies, so that we're able to, particularly along a protocol, pick a, a period when particularly... Uh, immediately after the transplant where we might have more frequent biopsies uh, every week and then it becomes every two weeks and every month etc and so that we can actually preempt the diagnosis of a clinical rejection by being able to see it on the microscope. And when you take these biopsies what are you looking for? What would be the signs of no rejections compared to the sign of a, an obvious rejection? Well, in the, uh, the biopsy series, we do several pieces and we look at different uh, levels of those biopsies. So we're looking at a good cross-sectional area. And if all those biopsies don't show any evidence of cellular infiltration, then we would know that there isn't any evidence of acute rejection of the cellular type. What's happened recently is that we now know to look for more subtle changes where there may be inflammatory cells, particularly macrophages within the tiny blood vessels within the heart biopsies. And then we would go on to stain for evidence of complement deposition and confirm the presence of those macrophages. So although the biopsy may not look very impressive on first look down the microscope, with these extra techniques we can di- diagnose an acute antibody-mediated rejection, which may need different treatment. And if there are these subtle signs, if the rejection takes years rather than days, what would we expect to happen to the patient? Well, acute rejection wouldn't take years. Acute rejection would occur, as it descriptions indicates, quite acutely. But the, the problem is that if it's going on untreated, unrecognised, then the implication, although no one's absolutely confident of the link, the implication is that there will be damage to the coronary arteries. And the accelerated atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries is what will actually lead to the long-term loss of the graft. There is correlation with that chronic rejection with the number and severity of acute rejection episodes and with some antibody-mediated rejection. So we're hoping that by monitoring the patients in the early stages that we may preempt that. But as with lots of other transplanted organs, the way we've been able to influence chronic rejection is actually quite disappointing and there is a, a fairly standard uh, chronic loss of organs despite all these interventions. Susan Stewart explaining why histopathology is essential for monitoring organ rejection as samples will clearly show whether the organ is being attacked by the cells of the immune system or show the damage done by antibodies. Immune suppressant drugs are used to try and stop rejection from occurring and getting the dose right is essential. Monitoring this falls to biomedical scientists such as Eamon O'Driscoll, chief biomedical scientist at Addenbrooke's and Papworth Hospitals. We monitor the blood levels of various immune suppressive drugs for the clinical teams. Uh, Cyclosporin, sirolimus and tacrolimus are the three commonly used drugs. We monitor those in the laboratory and measure them uh, using mass spectrometry. Um, The levels of the drugs need to be kept within small therapeutic windows. And if there's too much drug given, uh, it can cause uh, toxicity and can lead to damage of other organs or actually the organ being transplanted. 
or if it's too little it can lead to rejection where the body is not immune suppressed and it thinks there's a foreign organ in the body and it will just start to attack that so it's very important to keep the right level of immune suppression for each of the patients so these levels are fed back to the clinical teams and they interpret them and then may well change or keep the drug levels the same and what sort of level of precision do you really need well it's a difficult one really um, each drug will have its own therapeutic range some have very small therapeutic ranges some have larger ones so it really goes on the patient really so but um, they need to be closely monitored and uh, kept within these limits and how often does it need to be monitored? Well, different drugs have different half-lives, so it depends on the drug, depends on the half-life. Some are monitored uh, daily, some are monitored three or four days, and some are monitored once a week. So it really depends on the drug that the patient's on. So take me through the process. You have a patient who's just come out of surgeries on immunosuppressive drugs so that his body doesn't reject the new heart. What do you have to do? Well, the sample comes in from surgery and uh, we label it up in the laboratory, giving it a unique number. We then uh, analyse the blood, we extract the drug out of the blood and we put that extract into the mass spectrometer. The mass spectrometer then looks at the various uh, masses of the specific drugs. Uh, it's then converted into a concentration and that concentration then we report in the laboratory and computer which is available for the clinical teams to look at on the same day. So uh, we usually get the samples in by 10 o'clock in the morning. The result is out and available late afternoon for the ward rounds for the clinical team to decide whether there's too much, too little, or the levels spot on. And this sort of fast turnaround, I guess, is essential? It is, yes. Um, the medical teams are looking for their results every afternoon before their uh, first evening ward round. Uh, we run six days a week here at Addenbrooke's, Monday through to Saturday. Sunday's the only day we don't actually offer the service at the moment. Eamon O'Driscoll explaining how biomedical scientists monitor the levels of immune-suppressive drugs to make sure that they're within a narrow therapeutic window. It's important to remember that in the middle of all this is a patient. I spoke to Martin Barnsby, who received a transplant 19 years ago, and Jayan Parmishva, transplant cardiologist. It was um, 1991, and I was a very fit student, um, playing football at a fairly decent level, three or four times a week, you know, fairly common, but no health problems at all. And I suddenly felt, had what I thought was a cold, a lot of colds knocking around, coming up to Easter. But gradually, over several weeks, I... My ability to do the mundane things, walk upstairs even eventually, you know, run a bath, became, was becoming more and more laboured uh, until I you know, being sick as well. And so just these general, general things, which it took me a while to pick up because I thought it was just a general bug. But I, I went um, and eventually was referred to, through to Papworth and I was diagnosed with a cardiomyopathy, a viral kind rather than anything hereditary. And... That was uh, when I was 20, and it, I was on not at Papworth for that long, but I had um, I was on the ward, and I remember extremely clearly to this day the team coming in and saying, look, you need a heart transplant. Is that what you want to do? And you know, discussing this with my family, there was no decision really. And I, my, my question I asked, I remember it now, was, well, how long have I got if I don't? And it seemed quite rational. And the answer was 50% uh, chance of living six months which seemed to me like a, you know, there's no decision. There was no decision, so I said, of course. And then within two hours, the team had come back and said, right, 
amazingly, we found one, got a match. Are you happy to go ahead? It was all very, very quick. But I do remember you know, thinking this thing through, talking it through with family. I think, of course, yes, let's do it. And so three days after my 21st birthday, I had, uh, had a heart transplant. And that's a long while ago now. And how's your quality of life been for the last 19 years? Well, I promised myself once I'd had the transplant that I was the three things I would do, because I was at college at the time, and I said, right, three things. I'm going to go and graduate, and I'm going to go and play football again, and I will make my football presentation evening, which was going to be held that September. And I managed to do all three, and I'm now... Uh, I have a job as a press officer um, with Norfolk Fire and Rescue Service, which is a fairly stressful job at times, as you can imagine. I'm married and I have an eight-year-old daughter. So, yeah, yeah life is as normal. Martin, uh, by the sound of things, was very lucky. They found a heart very quickly and uh, he's obviously doing very, very well 19 years down the line. Is this a typical case or is he unusual in that regard? Martin is uh, atypical in two ways. One is that he was iller than most and he was stuck in an intensive care unit with support and so on. So he couldn't have waited very much longer, really. Getting a heart in two hours is unusual, and even for really sick people on what we call the urgent waiting list, they often have to wait weeks now. It's not unusual enough for people who are ill enough for a transplant but who are well enough to wait at home to wait over a year. And, and there, unfortunately, always will be a certain percentage of people who will not get a heart transplant, unfortunately, will die on the waiting list. Because our, our management, our treatment of heart failure has improved, we managed to keep that percentage fairly low. But we'll never have enough hearts to do everyone who could potentially benefit from a heart transplant. And that's our biggest problem. Uh, when Martin had his heart transplant, the UK did something like 350 heart transplants in a year. It's just over 100 now. So in the last 19 years, we've come down to about a third of what we were doing then. And that's a big, big problem. Jayan Parmishra explaining how the rate of transplant surgery is falling and before him Martin Barnsby on his own transplant experience. So a heart transplant needs a team of surgeons, healthcare professionals, virologists, biomedical scientists, microbiologists, haematologists, histologists and many more, all contributing to giving people like Martin a long and healthy life. But even with their expertise, it relies on the generosity of people who give blood and register as an organ donor, without whom it's impossible. At the end of the event, Tim Reggett explained what he hoped would be the message. Well, I hope they'll take home the fact that working in this area is very exciting and that we're doing an important job. We had a group of patients here tonight who were telling us the benefits to them of having a transplant, how they, or their life expectancy was a few months before they had the operation. And now, you know, three, four, five, ten years later, they're still a, uh, alive and well. So I, I think the message is that heart transplantation is successful and that it's a very worthwhile procedure to, to have. And it's very interesting. A lot of the audience tonight were sixth formers. And what we're hoping in National Pathology Week is that we can inspire young people, bright young people, to take up medicine, to take up pathology, and to be the pathologists of the future. That's all from this National Pathology Week podcast. Do please check out the others in this series where we're exploring the art of the heart, the anatomy of a heart attack, and why thinking heart could save a baby's life. You can find out more about National Pathology Week online at nationalpathologyweek.org. That's all one word. And you can visit the Royal College of Pathologists online at rcpath.org. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientist.com, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.